0: The following is a conversation with Dan Kokodov, VP of Engineering at Rev.ai, which is, by many metrics, the best speech-to-text AI engine in the world. Rev, in general, is a company that does captioning and transcription of audio by humans and by AI. I've been using their services for a couple of years now and, and planning to use Rev to add both captions and transcripts to some of the previous and future episodes of this podcast to make it easier for people to read through the conversation or reference various parts of the episode, since that's something that quite a few people requested. I'll probably do a separate video on that with links on the podcast website so people can provide suggestions and improvements there. Quick mention of our sponsors. Athletic Greens, all in one nutrition drink. Blinkist app that summarizes books. Business Wars podcast and Cash App. So the choice is health, wisdom, or money. Choose wisely, my friends. And if you wish, click the sponsor links below to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that I reached out to Dan and the Rev team for a conversation because I've been using and genuinely loving their service and really curious about how it works. I previously talked to the head of Adobe Research for the same reason. For me, there's a bunch of products, usually it's software, that comes along and just makes my life way easier. Examples are Adobe Premiere for video editing, Azotope RX for cleaning up audio, AutoHotKey on Windows for automated keyboard and mouse tasks, Emacs as an IDE for everything, including the universe itself. I can keep on going, but you get the idea. I just like talking to people who create things I'm a big fan of. That said, after doing this conversation, the folks at Rev.ai offered to sponsor this podcast in the coming months. This conversation is not sponsored by the guest. It probably goes without saying, but I should say it anyway, that you cannot buy your way onto this podcast. I don't know why you would want to. I wanted to bring this up uh, to make a specific point that no sponsor will ever influence what I do on this podcast or to the best of my ability, influence what I think. I wasn't really thinking about this. Uh, for example, when I interviewed Jack Dorsey, who is the CEO of Square that happens to be sponsoring this podcast, but I should really make it explicit. I will never take money for bringing a guest on. Every guest on this podcast is someone I genuinely am curious to talk to or just genuinely love something they've created. As I sometimes get criticized for, I'm just a fan of people and that's who I talk to. As I also talk about way too much, money is really never a consideration. In general, no amount of money can buy my integrity. That's true for this podcast, and that's true for anything else I do. If you enjoy this thing, subscribe on YouTube, review on the Apple Podcast, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter, at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now, and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, But I give you timestamps, so if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It is the best way to support this podcast. This show is sponsored by, who's quickly becoming my favorite sponsor, Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. I just, in fact, actually finished drinking it. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. I do intermittent fasting of 16 to 24 hours every day and always break my fast with athletic greens. I can't say enough good things, can't stop raving about these guys. It helps me not worry whether I'm getting the nutrients I need. One of the many reasons I'm a fan is that they keep iterating on the formula, keep improving it like all good engineers and scientists always should be. Life is not about reaching perfection. It's about constantly striving for it and making sure each iteration is a positive delta. The other thing I've taken for a long time outside of Athletic Greens is fish oil. So I'm especially excited now that they're selling fish oil and are offering listeners of this very podcast free one month supply of wild caught omega-3 fish oil. When you go to athleticgreens.com slash lex to claim the special offer. By the way, if the link doesn't seem to work for you for whatever reason, sometimes it doesn't if you have an ad blocker enabled. So try to turn off your ad blocker for this one particular case. But they're also trying to fix it, so they're on top of it. Click the athleticgreens.com slash lex link in the description to get the fish oil and the all-in-one supplement I rely on for the nutritional foundation of my physical and mental performance. This episode is supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I'm a big believer in reading at least an hour every day. As part of that, I use Blinkist to try out a book I may otherwise never have a chance to read. And in general, it's a great way to broaden your view of the idea landscape out there and find books that you may want to read more deeply. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. I also use Blinkist's Shortcast. That's a lot of S's. (laughs) To quickly catch up on a podcast episode I've missed. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the listeners of this podcast. Let me take a sip of this drink first. If you're listening to this, I dare you to try to guess which drink I'm drinking. Go to Blinkist.com Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com Lex to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial, Blinkist.com Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Business Wars Podcast. Tech entrepreneurs are in all-out race to cash in on our collective addiction to social media. That sentence was way harder to pronounce than I thought when I first started saying it. In the newest season of Wondery's Business Wars, TikTok versus Instagram, they tracked the war between two social media giants. I've spoken about possibly entering this space by helping build a new social network. This is something I struggle with quite a bit because it feels like standing on the edge of a cliff, hoping to fly. I want to keep my mind and heart open, fragile, but it seems that the world can too easily destroy such a mind, and so I wonder if I'm able to face such challenges. Perhaps the choice isn't mine to make. Perhaps it's already been made. Anyway, this podcast season looks at just one heated competition in the space where the game, in my view, is not one that makes for a better world. Listen to the latest season of Business Wars, TikTok versus Instagram on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. I just, just in general, I highly recommend Wondery. There's a lot of good podcasts on there. Finally, the show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. When you get it, use code LexPodcast. Cash App lets you send money to friends, by Bitcoin and invest in the stock market with as little as $1. I'm thinking of doing some conversation with folks who work in and around the cryptocurrency space, similar to artificial intelligence. There are a lot of charlatans in this space, but there's a lot of free thinkers as well, technical geniuses that are worth exploring ideas with in depth and with care. And I think it's pretty clear that cryptocurrency is here to stay. Bitcoin just hit $32,000. Anyway, if you get Cash App from the App Store, or Google Play, and use code LEXPODCAST, you get $10. And Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, an organization that is helping to advance robotics and STEM education for young people around the world. And now, here's my conversation with Dan Kokorov. You mentioned science fiction on the phone. So let's go with the ridiculous first. What's the greatest sci-fi novel of all time in your view? And maybe what ideas do you you find philosophically fascinating about
1: it? The greatest sci-fi novel of all time is Dune. And the second greatest is The Children of Dune. And the (laughs) third greatest is The God Emperor of Dune. So I'm a a huge fan of the whole uh, series. I mean, it's just an incredible world that he created. And I don't know if you've read the book or not.
0: No, I have not. It's one of the, my biggest regrets, especially because a new movie is coming out. Right. And, and everyone's super excited about it. I used to, it's ridiculous to say, and sorry to interrupt, is that I used to play the video game. It used to be Dune. That's, I guess you would call that real time strategy.
1: Right, right. I think I remember that game. Yeah,
0: it's kind of awesome, 90s or something.
1: I yeah, think I yeah, played yeah. it
0: actually when I was in
1: Russia. I, I definitely remember it. I was not in Russia anymore. I think uh, at the time that I used to live in Russia, I think video games were about, like, the suspicion of Pong. I think Pong was pretty much, like, the greatest game I ever got to play in, in Russia, which was still a privilege, right, in that age. So you didn't get color? You didn't get, like... Uh... <laughs> well, so I left Russia in 1991, right? 1991, okay. Uh, so I one wanted the few like a kid because my mom was a programmer. So I would go to her work, right? I would take the... The Metro. I got our work and play like on, I guess, the equivalent of like a 286 PC, you know? Nice. Uh, With floppy
0: disks. Yes. yes, So, okay, but back to Dune. What do you get?
1: Back to Dune. And by the way, the new movie I'm pretty interested in, but. You're skeptical? (laughs) I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical. I saw the trailer. Uh, I don't know. So, there's there's a David Lynch movie, Dune, uh, as you may know. I'm a huge David Lynch fan, by the way. So, the movie is somewhat controversial, uh, but. It's a little confusing but it captures kind of the mood of the book better than i would say like most any adaptation and like dune is so much about kind of mood and the world right but back to the philosophical point so in the fourth book god emperor of dune there's a sort of setting where leto one of the characters he's become this weird sort of god emperor He's turned into a gigantic worm. I mean, you kind of have to read the book to understand what that means. So the worms are involved. Worms are involved. You probably saw the worms in (laughs) the trailer, right? Uh, And in the video game. So he kind of like merges with this worm um, and becomes this tyrant of the world and he like oppresses the people for a long time, right? But he has a purpose. And the purpose is to kind of uh, break through kind of a stagnation period in civilization, right? Um, But people have gotten too comfortable, right? And so he kind of oppresses them so that they explode and like go on to colonize new worlds and kind of renew the forward momentum of humanity right mm-hmm. and so to me that's kind of like fascinating right you need a little bit of pressure and suffering right to kind of like make progress not 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 get too comfortable uh, I don't <laughs> okay. know, maybe, maybe that's a bit of a it's cruel a... <laughs> philosophy <laughs> yeah. to take away but
0: that seems to be the case unfortunately obviously i'm a huge fan of uh suffering So one of the reasons we're talking today is that a bunch of people requested that I do transcripts for this podcast and do captioning. I used to make all kinds of YouTube videos and I would go on Upwork, I think, Mm -hmm. and I would hire folks to do transcription. And it was always a pain in the ass, if I'm being honest. And then I don't know how I discovered Rev, but, when I did, it was this feeling of like, holy shit, somebody figured out how to do it just really easily. I, I'm i I'm such a fan of just when people take a problem and they just make it easy. right? You know, like just, uh, there's so many, it's like, there's so many things in life that you might not even be aware of that are painful, then rev... You just like give the audio, give the video. You can actually give a YouTube link, and then it comes back like a day later or uh, uh, two days later, whatever the hell it is, with the captions, you know, all in a standardized format. It was, I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it was truly a joy. So I I thought I had, you know, just for the hell of it, uh, talk. To you, that one other product, it just made my soul feel good. One other product I've used like that is uh, for people who might be familiar, is called Isotope RX. It's for audio editing. Yeah. Right. And like, and that's another one where it was like, you just drop it. I, d- I dropped it into the audio and it just cleans everything up really nicely. All the stupid, like the mouth sounds and sometimes there's uh, background like s- sounds due to the malfunction of the equipment It can clean that mm-hmm. stuff up it can it has like general voice denoising it has like automation capabilities where you can do batch processing and you can put put a bunch of effects i mean it just i don't know everything else sucked for like voice based cleanup that I've ever used. I've used Audition, Adobe Audition. I've used all kinds of other things with plugins. And you have to kind of figure it all out. You have to do it manually here, it's just, it just worked. So that that's another one in this whole pipeline that just brought joy to my to my heart. Anyway, all that to say is uh, uh, Rev put a smile to my face. So can you maybe take a step back and say, what is Rev and how does it work? And Rev or
1: Rev.com? Rev <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, I guess. Uh that we, we do have rev.ai now as well, which we can talk about later. So, like do you have the actual domain or is it just uh <laughs> the actual domain, but we also use it kind of as a as a sub brand. Oh you know, so, we, so we use rev.ai to uh, denote our ASR services, right? And Rev.com is kind of our more oh. human and to the end user services. Brilliant.
0: So it's like WordPress.com and WordPress.org, they actually have separate brands that like I don't know if you're familiar with what those are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They provide almost like a separate branch of.
1: Uh... A little bit. I think with that, it's like WordPress.org is kind of their open source, right? And uh, WordPress.com is sort of their hosted commercial offering. Yes. Um, and with us, the differentiation is a little bit different, but right. may- maybe similar idea. Yep. Okay. So, um, what is Rev? Before I launch into uh, what is Rev, I was going to say, you know, like you, you're talking about like Rev was music to your ears. Yeah. Your, your spiel was music to my ears. And yeah. To us. <laughs> founders of Rev because um, Rev was kind of founded to improve on the model of Upwork. That was kind of the original um, or part of their original impetus. Like our our CEO, Jason, was an early employee of uh, Upwork. So he's very familiar with their- Upwork the company. Upwork the company. And so he was very familiar with that model and he wanted to make the whole experience better because he knew like, when you go at that time, Upwork was primarily programmers. So the main thing they offered is if you want to hire, you know, someone to help you code a little site, right? Um, you could go on Upwork, um, and you could like browse through a list of freelancers, pick a programmer, you know, have a contract with them and have them do some work. But it was kind of a difficult experience because uh, for the for you, you would kind of have to browse through all these people, right? And you have to decide, okay, like, well, is this guy good? Is, um, or somebody else better. And naturally, you know, you're going to Upwork because you're not an expert, right? Uh, If you're an expert, you probably wouldn't be like getting a programmer from Upwork. Uh, So so how can you really tell? Uh, So there's kind of like a lot of potential regret, right? What if I choose a bad person? They're like gonna be late on the work. It's gonna be a painful experience. Mm -hmm. And for the freelancer, it was also painful because, you know, half the time they spent not on actually doing the work, but kind of figuring out how can I make my profile most attractive? To the buyer right and they're not an expert on that either uh, so like Rob's idea was let's remove the barrier right like let's make it simple We're, we'll pick a few uh verticals that are fairly standardizable you know we actually started with translation um and then we added audio transcription a bit later and we'll just make it a website you go give us your files we'll give you back uh, the results you know as soon as possible you know originally maybe it was 48 hours, then we made it shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, yeah, there's a rush processing too. There's a rush processing now. Uh, and uh, we'll hide all the details from you, right? Yeah. Uh, and like, that's kind of exactly what you're experiencing, right? You don't you don't need to worry about the details of how the sausage is made.
0: That's really cool. The, so you picked like a vertical, by vertical you mean basically a- A, cat- a service, a, a ch- service category. Why translation? Is Rev thinking of potentially going into other verticals in the future, or is this like the focus now is uh, translation, transcription, like language?
1: Uh, the focus now is is language or uh, speech services generally, speech to text, language services. You can kind of group them however you want. Um, so, but we uh, originally the categorization was work from home, you know, so one uh, work that was done by people on a computer. You know, we weren't trying to get into you know. Um, task rabbit type of things and something that could be relatively standard, not a lot of options. So we could kind of present the simplified interface, right? Yeah. Uh, so programming wasn't like a good fit because each programming project is kind of unique, right? We're looking for something that uh, transcription is, you know, you have five hours of audio, it's five hours of audio, right? Translation is somewhat similar in that, you know, you can have a five-page document, you know, and then you just can price it by that. And then you pick, pick the language you want. And that's, that's mostly all it is to it. So th- those, were a few criteria. We started with translation because we saw the need, um, and, uh, we picked a kind of a specialty of translation, um, where we would translate things like birth certificates, uh, mm. so uh immigration, documents, immigration things documents, things like that. And so they were fairly, uh, even more well-defined so and easy be- to kind of tell if we did a good job. You can literally charge per type of document.
0: Was that was was that the so what what is it now? Is it per word or something like that?
1: Like how do you, like how do you measure
0: the effort involved in a particular
1: thing? So now, like so for audio transcription, right? It's uh, per audio minute. Well, that that yeah. yes. For for, for translation, we don't really uh, actually focus on that anymore. Uh, but you know, it, back when it was still a main business of Rabbit was per page, right, or per word, depending on the kind of... Because uh, you can also do translation now on the audio, right? Mm-hmm. So, like subtitles. So Subtitle. it would be both uh, transcription and translation. That's right. I
0: wanted to test the system to see how good it is. To see, like, how, how uh, well, is Russian supported? I think so,
1: yeah. It'd be interesting to try it out. I
0: mean, one of the... But
1: now it's only in, like, the one direction, right? So you start with English, and then you can have subtitles in Russian. In not Russian. really, Not really the other way.
0: Got it, because it's I'm I'm deeply curious about this. I'm when COVID opens up a little bit, when the economy, when the world opens up a little bit,
1: you want to build I, your brand in Russia? No, I don't. <laughs> First of all, I'm allergic to the word brand.
0: It's <laughs> <All terrible. right. laughs> I'm am definitely not building uh, any brands in Russia. Nice, but I'm going to Paris to talk to the uh, translators of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. There's this famous couple that does translation, and you know I'm more and more thinking of how is it possible to have a conversation with a Russian speaker? Because I have just some number of famous Russian speakers that I'm interested in talking to. Mm -hmm. And my Russian is not strong enough to be witty and funny. I'm already an idiot in English. I'm an extra level of like awkward idiot in Russian. But I can understand it, right? And I also like wonder how can I create a compelling... English Russian experience for an English speaker. Like if I, there's a guy named Grigory Perlman, who's a mathematician who uh, obviously doesn't speak any English. So I would probably incorporate like a Russian translator into the picture. And then it would be like a, not to use a weird term, but like a three, like a three, three person thing where it's like a dance of where like, I understand it one way, they don't understand the other way, but I'll be asking questions in English. I don't know, I don't know the it's right way. It's complicated. It's complicated, but I feel like it's worth the effort for certain kinds of people. One of whom I'm confident is Vladimir Putin, I'm for sure talking to. I really want to make it happen because I think I could do a good job of it. But the the right, you know, understanding the fundamentals of translation is something I'm really interested in. So that's why I'm starting with um, the actual translators of like Russian literature because they understand the nuance and the beauty of the language and mm-hmm. how it goes back and forth. But I also want to see like in speech, how can we do it in real time? So that's mm. that's like a little bit of a a baby project that I hope to push forward. But anyway
1: it's a challenging thing. So just to share yeah. uh, my dad um actually does translation. Um not not professionally he's a uh, he writes poetry. Mm. That was kind of always his uh not a hobby, but he's, he's uh, he, you know, he had a job like a day job, but his passion was always writing poetry. Uh, and then we get got to America, and it, like he started also translating. Um, first, he was translating English poetry to Russian. Now he also like goes the other uh, the other way. He kind of gained some small fame in that world, anyways, because mm-hmm. uh, recently this poet, like Louis Glück, I don't know if you know of, uh, so American poet, um, mm-hmm. she was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, and so my dad had translated uh, one of her books of poetry into Russian and he was like oh, wow. one of the few. So he kind of like, they asked him and gave an interview to Radius Svoboda, if you know what that is. And he kind of talked about some of the intricacies of translating poetry. So that's like an extra level of difficulty, right? Because translating poetry is even more challenging than yeah. translating just, you know, it's interviews. Hurtful. Do you
0: remember any, any experiences and challenges to having to do the translation that, that stick out to you, like something he's talked about?
1: I mean, a lot of it I think is word choice, right? It's, the, the way Russian is structured is first of all quite different than um, the way English is structured, right? Just there is inflections in Russian and genders and they don't exist in English. That's One of the reasons actually why um, machine translation is quite difficult for English to Russian and Russian to English because they're so, such different languages. But then English has like a huge number of words, um, many more than Russian actually, I think. So it's often, difficult to find the right word, to like mm-hmm. convey the same emotional meaning.
0: Yeah, Russian language, they play with words much more. So you, you were mentioning that uh, Rev was kind of born out of um, trying to take a vertical on Upwork and then
1: standardize it, so. We're just but- trying to make the, the freelancer marketplace idea better, right? Um, better for both customers and better for the freelancers themselves. Is there something else to the story of
0: a Rev finding Rev? Like, what what did it take to bring it to actually to life? Was there any pain points?
1: Uh, <laughs> plenty of plenty of pain points. I mean, uh, as as often the case, it's with scaling it up, right? Um, and in this case, you know, the scaling is kind of scaling the the marketplace, so to speak, right? Rev is essentially a two sided marketplace, right? Because you know, there's the customers and then there's the drivers. Uh, if there's not enough drivers. Are what we' call our freelancers so if, if there's not enough Revers, then customers have a bad experience, right you know it takes longer to get your work done um, things like that you know if there's too many then the have a bad experience because they might log on to see like what work is available and there's not very much work right uh, so kind of keeping that balance um, is 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 a quite challenging problem and you know that's that's like a problem we've been working on for many years yeah. we're still like refining our methods right? If you can kind of talk to this gig economy idea, I did a bunch of different
0: psychology experiments on Mechanical Turk, for example. I've asked to do different kinds of very tricky computer vision annotation on Mechanical Turk, and it's mm-hmm. connecting connecting people in a more systematized way. I would say, you know, between task and, and uh, what would you call that, worker, is what Mechanical Turk calls it. What do you think about this world of gig economies? Of there being a service that connects customers to workers in a way that's like massively distributed, like potentially scaling to it could it could be scaled to like tens of thousands of people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is there something interesting about that world that you can speak to?
1: Yeah, well, we we don't think of it as kind of gig economy, like to some degree. I don't like the word gig that much, right? Because to some degree it diminishes the work's being done, right? It sounds kind of like almost amateurish. Well, maybe in like music industry, like gig is is the standard term, but Mm. in in work it it kind of sounds like it's it's, it's frivolous. Um, To us, it's uh, improving the nature of working from home on your own time and on your own terms, right? And kind of taking away geographical limitations and time limitations, right? Uh, so, you know, many of our freelancers are maybe work from home moms, right? And, you know, they don't want the traditional nine to five job, but they want to make some income. And rough kind of like allows them to do that and decide like exactly how much to work and when to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, or by the same token, maybe someone is, you know, someone wants to live the mountaintop, you know, life, right? You know, cabin in the woods, but they still wanna make some money. Um, and like, generally that wouldn't be compatible before, before this new world, you kind of had to choose. Uh, but like with Rev, like, you feel like you don't have to choose. Can you speak to like, what's the
0: demographics, like distribution, like where do revers live? Is it from all over the world? Like, what is it? Do you have a sense of
1: uh uh It's what's from all there? over the world. Uh, most of them are in the US that's the majority um you know, because most of our work is uh, audio transcription and mm-hmm. so you have to speak pretty good English yes uh, so the majority of them are from the US so we have people in some other of the english-speaking countries and as far as like us it's really all over the place um, you know for some years now we've been doing these little meetings where the management team will go to someplace and we'll try to meet reverse and you know, pretty much wherever we go, it's pretty easy to find you know a large number of rivers. You know, the, the most recent one we did is in Utah. Uh, and so, but but anywhere really. Are they from
0: all walks of life? Are these young folks, older folks?
1: Yeah, all walks of life really. Like I said, you know, one one category is you know the work from home mom, students, you know, who want to make some extra income. There are some people who maybe you know maybe they're have some social anxiety, so they don't want to be in the office, right? And yeah. this is one way for them to make a living. So it's it's really pretty, pretty wide variety. But like on the flip side, for example, one rapper we were talking to was a, a person who had a fairly high powered career before and was kind of like taking a break mm-hmm. and just wanted, and she was almost doing this just to explore and learn about, you know, the gig economy, quote unquote, right? So it really is a, a pretty wide variety of folks.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting through the captioning process for me to learn about the the, the Revers because um, like some are clearly like weirdly knowledgeable about technical concepts. Like mm-hmm. you can tell by how good they are at like capitalizing stuff, like like technical terms, like in machine learning or deep learning. Right. Like I've used Rev to annotate, uh, to caption um, the deep learning lectures or machine learning lectures I did at MIT and it's funny, like a large number of them were like, I don't know if they looked it up
1: or were already knowledgeable, but they do a really good job at like,
0: not I don't they, know. they
1: invest uh, time into these things. They will like re- do research, they will Google things, you know, it's to all... kind of make sure that they get it right. But to some of them, it's like, it's actually part of the enjoyment of the work. Like they'll tell us, you know, I love doing this because I get paid to watch a documentary on something. Right. right? And I learn something while I'm transcribing. Right. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So what's that, uh, captioning transcription process look like for the rever? Can you maybe speak to that to give people a sense, like how much is automated, how much is manual? Mm-hmm. What's the actual interface look like? All that kind of
1: stuff. Yeah. So, we, you know, we've invested a pretty good amount of time to give like our reverse, um, the best tools possible. You know, so a typical day forever, they might log into their workspace, they'll see uh, a list of audios that need to be transcribed. And we try to give them tools to pick specifically the ones they want to do. You know? So maybe some people like to do longer audios or shorter audios. You know, people have their preferences. Some people like to do audios in a particular subject or from a particular country. So we try to give people you kind know, the tools to control uh, things like that. And then when they pick what they wanna do, we'll launch a specialized editor that we've built uh, to make transcription uh, as efficient as possible. They'll start with a speech track draft. So, you know, we have our uh, machine learning model uh, for uh, automated speech recognition. They'll start with that. And then our tools are optimized to help them correct that. So it's basically a process of correction. Um, yeah, it depends on, you know, I would say the audio. If audio itself is pretty good, like probably like our our podcast right now would be quite good. So the ASR would do a fairly good job. Um, But if you imagine someone recorded a lecture, you know, in the back of a uh, auditorium, right? Um, Where like the speaker is really far away and there's maybe a lot of crosstalk and things like that, then maybe the ASR wouldn't do a good job. So the person might say like, you know what? I'm just gonna do it from scratch. Do it from scratch, yeah. So it kind of really depends what would you say is the speed that you can possibly get? Like,
0: what's the fastest can you get? Is it possible to get real time or no? As you're like listening, can you write as fast as? Uh...
1: Real time would be pretty difficult. It's actually a pretty, it's not an easy job. You know, uh, we we actually encourage everyone at the company to try to be a transcriber for a day, descriptions for a day. um, And it's way harder than you might think it, it is, right? Because people talk fast. And people have accents, and all this kind of stuff. So real time is pretty difficult. Is it possible? Like, there's somebody. We're probably going to use Rev <laughs>
0: to, to caption this. They're they're listening to this right now. What's what's uh, what do you think is the fastest you could possibly get on this right now?
1: I think on a good audio, maybe two to three x. I would say uh, real time,
0: meaning it takes two to three times longer than the actual audio of the of the podcast. Yeah. This is this is so meta. I could just imagine the reverse working on this right now. <laughs> You're, like, You're
1: way wrong.
0: <laughs> You're way wrong. This takes way longer. But yeah, it definitely or you doubted me. I could do real time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so you mentioned ASR. Can you speak to what is ASR? Automatic speech recognition? How much like what is the gap between perfect human performance and uh perfect or pretty damn good ASR.
1: Yeah. So ASR, automatic speech recognition, it's a class of machine learning problem, right? To take, you know, speech like we were talking and transform it into a sequence of words, essentially. Audio of people talking. Audio, audio to words. Um, And, you know, there's a variety of different approaches and techniques, um, which we could talk about later if you want. Uh, So, you know, we think we have pretty much the world's best ASR for this kind of, um, speech, right? So there's, there's different kinds of domains, right? For ASR, like one domain might be voice assistance, right? So Siri, um, very different than what we're doing, right? Because Siri, there's fairly limited vocabulary. You know, you know, you might ask Siri to play a song or, you know, order a pizza or whatever. Um, and it's very good at doing that. Um, very different from when we're talking in a very unstructured way. Mm-hmm. And Siri will also generally like adapt to your voice and stuff like this. Uh, so for, for this kind of audio, we think we have the best, and our accuracy right now—it's I think it's maybe fourteen percent word error rate on a, on a, our test test suite that we generally use to measure. So word error rate is like one way to measure uh, accuracy for ASR. Right. So what's fourteen so percent? So fourteen percent means across this test suite of a variety of different audios, um, it would be um, it would get in some way, 14% of the word's wrong. Uh, 14% of the word's wrong. Yeah. So the way you kind of calculate it is, you might add up insertions, deletions, and substitutions, right? So insertions is like extra words, deletions are words that we said, but um, weren't in the transcript, right? Substitutions is, you said Apple, but I said, but the ASR thought it was able, something like this. Um, human accuracy, most people think, Realistically, it's like 3%, 2% word error rate would be like the the max achievable. So there's still quite a gap, right? Would you say that, so YouTube, when I upload videos, often generates automatic
0: captions. Are you sort of from a company perspective, from a tech perspective, are you trying to beat YouTube? Google, it's a hell of a, a (laughs) Google, I mean, I don't know how seriously they take this task, but I imagine it's quite serious. And they, you know, Google is probably up there in terms of their teams on um, on ASR or just NLP, natural language processing, different technologies. So do you think you can beat Google?
1: On this kind of stuff? Yeah, we think so. Um, Google just woke <laughs> up on my phone. <laughs> this is hilarious. Okay. Now Google is listening, uh, sending it back to headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these rough people? Uh, but that's the goal. No, yeah. I mean, we measure ourselves against like Google, Amazon, Microsoft. You know, some of the some smaller competitors. Um, and we use like our, our internal internal test suite. We try to compose it of a pretty representative set of audio. Maybe it's some podcasts, some videos, some inter- some interviews, some lectures, things like that. Right. And we beat them in our own testing. And uh, actually, Rev offers automated.
0: Like you can actually just do the automated uh, captioning. So like I guess it's like way cheaper, whatever it is, whatever the rates are. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a. By the way, it used to be a dollar per minute for captioning and transcription. I think it's like a dollar fifteen or something like that. Dollar twenty five. Dollar twenty five. Dollar mm-hmm. uh, twenty five now. Yeah, it's pr- it's pretty cool. That was the other thing that was surprising to me. It was actually like the cheapest thing you could. One of the, I mean, I I don't remember it being cheaper. You could on Upwork get cheaper, but it was clear to me that this that's going to be really shitty. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, you're also competing on price. I think there were services uh, that you can get, like, similar to Rev kind of um, feel to it, but it wasn't as automated. Like, the drag and drop, the entirety of the interface, it's like the thing we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm such a huge fan of, like, frictionless, like uh, Amazon's single... Uh, buy button, whatever. Yeah, yeah. that one that, click. The one click. That's genius, right there. Like that is so important for services. Yeah, that simplicity. And I mean, Rev is is uh, almost there. I mean, there's like some. I'm trying to think. So I, I think I've uh, I stopped using uh, this pipeline, but Rev offers it, and I, I like it. But it was. Causing me some issues uh, on my side, which is um, you can connect it to like Dropbox, mm-hmm. and it generates the files in Dropbox. So like it, it 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 closes the loop to where I don't have to go to Rev at all, and I can download it. Uh, um, sorry, I don't have to go to Rev at all and to download the files. It could just like automatically
1: copy them. To right, you're you putting your Dropbox and you know and a day just, later, or maybe a few hours later. Yeah, depending it just shows on if you're up. In rush. It just shows up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was trying to do it programmatically
0: too. Is there an API interface you can, yeah. I was trying to through like, through Python to download stuff automatically, but then I realized this is the programmer in me. Like, dude, you don't need to automate everything like in life, like flawlessly. Cause I wasn't doing enough captions to justify to myself the time investment into automating everything perfectly.
1: Yeah, I would say if, uh, if you're doing so many interviews that your biggest roadblock is uh, <laughs> clicking on the Rev download button. Now, that be, now, now, you're talking about yeah. Elon Musk levels of busyness. <laughs> <laughs> but for sure, we have like yeah, a variety of ways to make it easy. You know, there's the, the integration you mentioned. I think is through a store company called Sapier, which kind of right. can connect um, Dropbox to Rev and uh, vice versa. We have an API if you want to really like customize it. You know, if you want to create the Lex Friedman you know uh cms or or whatever <laughs> for this whole thing okay cool so can you speak to the the a-
0: asr a little bit more like what is it uh what does it take like approach wise machine learning wise how hard is this problem how do you get to the 3% error rate like what's your vision of all of this
1: yeah well the 3% rate error rate is definitely that's that's the grand vision um We'll see what it takes to get there, Um, but we believe you know in in ASR the biggest thing is the data, right? Like that's true of like a lot of machine learning problems today, right? The more data you have, and the higher quality the data, the better labeled the data. Um, That's how you get good results. And we at Rev have kind of like the best data. Like we have, like you're literally. We're, your your we're business model is annotating the data. Our, our business model is being paid to annotate <laughs> the data. Being paid to annotate the data. <laughs> uh, so That's it's kind hilarious. of like a pretty magical flywheel. Yeah. Uh, and so we've kind of like ridden this flywheel to, to to this point. Um, and we think we're still kind of in the early stages of figuring out all the parts of the flywheel to use. You know, because we have the final transcripts, um, and we have the um, the audios. And we, we train on that but we in principle also have all the edits that the revvers make right um oh that's I mean, interesting how can you use that as data we, yeah, that's that's something for us to figure out in the future but you know we feel like we're only in the early stages right so or the of da- but that. the
0: data is there that'd be interesting like a, almost like a recurrent neural net for fixing for fixing transcripts I, I, I always remember we did uh, segmentation annotation for uh, for driving data, so segmenting the scene, like visual data. Mm-hmm. And you, could, you can get all, so it was drawing, people were drawing polygons around different objects and so on. And it feels like, it always felt like there was a lot of information in the clicking, the sequence of clicking that people do, the kind of fixing of the polygons that they do. Now, there's a few papers written about how to draw polygons, like with uh, recurrent you neural know, nets to try to learn from the human clicking but it was just right. like experimental you know it was one of those like cvpr type papers that people do like a really tiny data set it didn't feel like people really tried to do it seriously yeah i wonder i wonder if there's information in the fixing that's high, that that provides deeper set of signal than just like the raw uh, data mm-hmm. of the course,
1: intuition is for sure there must be right there must uh. be in, in in all kinds of signals and how long you took to, you know, make that edit and stuff like that. Uh, and it's gonna be like up to us. That's, that's why like we're, the next couple of years is like super exciting for us, right? So that's what like the focus is now. It's, you mentioned
0: rev.ai, that's where you want to.
1: Yeah, so rev.ai is kind of um, our way of bringing this ASR to, you know, the rest of the world, right? So when we started, um, we were human only, you know, then we kind of created this uh, Temi service, I think you might've used it, uh, which was kind of ASR for the consumer, right? So if you don't want to pay $1.25, but you want to pay, now it's 25 cents a minute, I think, and you get the the transcript, the uh, machine generated transcript, and you get an editor, and you can kind of fix it up yourself, right? Then we started using the ASR for our own um, human transcriptionists. And then the kind of Ravi is the final step of the journey, which is, you know, we have this amazing engine. What can people build with it, right? What kind of new applications could be enabled um, if you have speech track that's that accurate? Do you have ideas for this or is it just providing it as a service and seeing what people come up with? It's providing it as a service and seeing what people come up with and kind of learning from what people do with it. And we have ideas of our own as well, of course, but it's a little bit like You know, when AWS provided the building blocks, right? Um, And they saw what people built with it, and they try to make it easier to build those things, right? And we kind of hope to do the same thing. Although AWS
0: kind of does a shitty job of, like, I'm continually surprised, like Mechanical Turk, for example, how shitty the interface is. We're talking about, like, Rev making me feel good. Like, when I first discovered Mechanical Turk, the initial idea of it was like, it made me feel like Rev does, but then the interface is like, come on. Yeah, it's horrible. Why Why is yeah. it so painful? Does nobody at Amazon wanna like seriously invest in it? It felt like you could make so much money if you took this effort seriously. And it feels like they have a committee of like two people just sitting back, like like a meeting, they meet once a month, like, what are we gonna do with Mechanical Turk? If, if it's like uh, two websites make me feel like this, that and
1: Craigslist.org, whatever the hell it is. It
0: yeah, yeah. feels like it's designed in the 90s.
1: Well, Craigslist basically hasn't been updated pretty much since the do, guy originally Do you originally seriously built.
0: think there's a team, like how big is the team working on Mechanical Turk?
1: I don't know, there's some team, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel like there isn't, I'm skeptical.
1: Yeah. Well, if, if it's nothing possible. else, they benefit from, you know, the other teams like moving things forward, <laughs> right? <laughs> in A small way, possible. Uh, but no, I, I know you mean we do. We we use mechanical Turk for a couple of things yeah. as well, and yeah, it's yeah. painful it's, UI. It's painful, but yeah, it works. It actually, I yeah. think most people. The, the thing is, most people don't really use the UI, right? Like so, right. like we, for example, we That's right. use it use through the API, right? So yeah, but even the API documentation and so on,
0: like, is super outdated. Like yeah, it's i don't i don't even know what the. i mean the same like, same criticism as long as we're ranting <laughs> my same criticism goes to the apis of most of these companies like google for example the api for the different services is just the documentation is so shitty like it's not so shitty i should I should actually be, uh, I should exhibit some gratitude. (laughs) Okay, let's practice some gratitude. Gratitude. The, The, you know, the documentation is pretty good. Like most of the things that the API makes available is pretty good. It's just that in the sense that it's accurate, sometimes outdated, but like the degree of explanations with examples is only covering, I would say, like 50% of what's mm-hmm, possible. Mm-hmm. And it just feels a little bit like there's a lot of natural questions that people would want to ask that doesn't uh, doesn't get covered. And it feels like it's almost there, like it's such a magical
1: thing, yeah. like the Maps API, YouTube API. I There's yeah. a bunch I of I gotta stuff. imagine it's like, you know, there's probably some team at Google, right, responsible for writing this documentation. That's probably not the engineers, right, and exactly. probably this team is not, you know, where you want to be. Well, it's a it's a weird thing.
0: I, I sometimes think about this uh, for somebody who wants to also uh, build a company. I think about this a lot. You know, YouTube, the you know the service is one of the m- most magical. Like, I'm so grateful that YouTube exists, and yet they seem to be quite clueless on so many things like that everybody's screaming them at. Like it feels like whatever the mechanism that you use to listen to your quote unquote customers, which is like the creators is not very good.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like there's literally people that are like screaming, why like uh, their new YouTube studio, for example, there's like features that, that were like begged for, for a really long time, like being able to upload multiple videos at the same time, that was missing for a really, really long time. Now, like there's probably things that I don't know, which is maybe for that kind of huge infrastructure, it's actually very difficult to build some of these features. But the fact that that wasn't communicated and it felt like you're not being heard like I remember this experience for me and it, it's not a pleasant experience. Yeah, yeah. And it feels like the company doesn't give a damn about you. And that's something to think about. I'm not sure what that is. That might have to do with just like small groups working on these small features and these specific features. And there's no overarching like dictator type of human that says like, why the hell are we neglecting? Like Steve Jobs type of character. It's like, there's people that we need to, we need to speak to the people that like want to love our product and
1: they don't. Let's yeah, fix maybe this. Maybe at shit. some point you just get so fixated on the numbers, right? And it's like, well, the numbers are pretty great, right? That's like right. people are watching, you know. Doesn't seem to be a problem, right? It doesn't and you, seem you don't, to be a problem. And you're not like the person that like built this thing, right? So yeah. you really care about it, yeah. You know, you're just there. You came in as a product manager, right? You got hired sometime later. Your mandate is like increase this to number like you know, ten percent, right? And yeah. that's brilliantly put like if you this is okay if there's a lesson in this
0: is don't reduce your company into a metric of like how much uh like you said how much how much people watching the videos and so on and 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 like convince yourself that everything is working just because the numbers are going up yeah there's something you have to have a vision you have to uh you have to want people to love your stuff because love is ultimately the beginning of like a successful long-term company. Is that yeah. they always should love your
1: product. You have to be like a creator and have yeah. that like creator's yeah. love for your own thing, right? Yeah. Like, and you are pained by you know these these comments, right? And probably like I mean, Apple, I think did this generally like yes, really, well. really well. You know, yeah. they're they're well known for kind of keeping teams small even when they were big, right? And you know, you as an engineer, like there's that book, uh, Creative Selection. I don't know if you read it by a um Apple engineer named Ken Kosienda. It's kind of a great book, actually, because unlike most of these business books where it's, you know, here's how Steve Jobs ran the company, it's, it's more like, here's how life was like for me, you know, an engineer, here are the projects I worked on and here what it was like to pitch Steve Jobs, you know, yeah. on like, you know, I think it was in charge of like the keyboard and the auto correction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at Apple, like, Steve Jobs reviewed everything. And so he was like, this is what it was like to show my demos to Steve Jobs and, mm-hmm. you know, to change them because like Steve Jobs didn't like how, you know, the shape of the little key was off because the rounding of the corner was like, not quite right or something like this, Right, he was famously a stickler for this kind of stuff. But because the teams were small, you really owned the stuff, right? So you really cared.
0: Yeah, Elon Musk does that similar kind of thing with Tesla, which is really interesting. There's another lesson in leadership in that is to be obsessed with the details and like he talks to like the lowest level engineers. Okay, so we're talking about asr and so this is basically where i was saying we're going to take this like ultra seriously and then what's the mission to try to keep pushing towards the three percent
1: um yeah and kind of try to um try to build this platform where all of your you know audience, all of your meetings you know uh, they're as easily accessible as your notes right like so like imagine all the uh, meetings a company might have, right? You know, I'm now that I'm like no longer a programmer, right? And I'm a quote unquote manager, uh that's less like my day is in meetings, right? Yeah. And you know, pretty often I want to like see what what was said, right? Who said it, you know, what's the context? But it's generally not really something that you can easily retrieve, right? Like imagine if all of those meetings were indexed, archived, you know, you could go back, you could share a clip like really easily, right? So that might change completely like everything
0: that's said, converted to text, might change completely the
1: dynamics of what we do in this
0: world, especially now with remote work, right? Exactly. Exactly. Was was Zoom and so on? That's that's fascinating to think about. I mean, for me, I care about podcasts, right? And one of the things that was, you know, I'm torn. I know a lot of the engineers at Spotify, so I, I love them very much because they uh, they dream big. In terms of like, they want to empower creators. So one of my hopes was with Spotify that they would use a technology like Rev or something like that to, to start converting everything into uh, into text and make it indexable. Like one of the things that that sucks with podcasts is like it's hard to find stuff. Like the the model is basically subscription. Like you find. Uh, it's similar. It's similar to what YouTube used to be like, which is you basically find a creator that you enjoy and you subscribe to them, and like you just yeah, uh, you you just kind of follow what they're doing. But the search and discovery wasn't a big part of YouTube like in the early days. But and that's what currently with podcasts like is the search and discovery is. Uh, like non existent. You're basically searching for like the dumbest possible thing, which is like keywords in the right. titles of episodes.
1: Yeah. As but a, even aside from searching, discover like all the time. So I listen to like a number of podcasts and, um, you know, there's something said and I want to like go back to that later because I was trying to, I'm trying to remember true. what do you say? Like maybe you, like recommended some cool product that yeah. I want to try out. And like it's basically impossible. Maybe like some people have pretty good show notes. So maybe you'll get lucky and you can find it. Right. But I mean, if everyone had transcripts and, it was all searchable. It was a game changer. It would be so much better.
0: I mean, that's one of the things that I, I wanted to, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking t- today is I wanted to take this quite seriously, the the rough thing. I've just been lazy. Uh, so uh, because I'm very fortunate that a lot of people support this podcast, that there's enough money now to do uh, transcription and so on, it, it seemed clear to me, especially like CEOs and, sort of uh, like PhDs, like people write to me who are like graduate students in computer science or graduate students in whatever the heck field. It's clear that their mind, like they enjoy podcasts when they're doing laundry or whatever, but they want to revisit the conversation in a much more rigorous way. And they Mm -hmm. really want a transcript. Mm -hmm. Like It's clear that they want to like analyze conversations. so many people wrote to me about a transcript for Yosha Bach conversation. I had just a bunch of conversations. And then on the Elon Musk side, like reporters want like, they want to write a blog post about your conversation. So they want to be able to pull stuff. And it's like, they're essentially doing on your conversation transcription privately. They're doing it for, yeah. for themselves, and yeah. then starting to pick. But it's so much easier when you can actually do it as a reporter. Just look at the transcript. Yeah,
1: and you can like embed a little thing, you know, like into your article. Right here's what they yeah. said. Here you can go listen to like this clip from the section. I'm actually trying powerful. to trying to figure
0: out. I'll probably on the website create like a place where the transcript goes like as a webpage so that people can reference it, like reporters can reference it and so on. I mean, most of the reporters probably have uh, want to write clickbait articles that are complete falsifying, which I'm fine with. It's the way of journalism. I don't care. Like I've had this conversation with um, a, a friend of mine, a mixed martial artist, the Ryan Hall. <laughs> and we, we talked about, you know, as I've been reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and a bunch of books on Hitler, and we brought up Hitler, and he made some kind of comment where, like, we should be able to forgive Hitler. And, uh, you know, like, we were talking about forgiveness, and we were bringing that up as, like, the worst-case possible thing. is like even, you know, for people who are Holocaust survivors, one of the ways to let go of the suffering they've been through is to is to forgive. And he brought up like Hitler is somebody that would, would potentially be the the hardest thing to possibly forgive, but it might be a worthwhile pursuit psychologically, mm-hmm. so on, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. It was very eloquent, very powerful words. I think people should go back and listen right, to right. it. It's powerful. And then all these journalists, this, yeah. all these articles written about like, MMA fight, UFC fight. fighter, MMA right.
1: fighter loves Hitler. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, like, well, no, they didn't, they were somewhat accurate. Uh-huh. They didn't say, like, loves Hitler. They said, um, thinks that uh, if Hitler came back to life, we should forgive him. Like, they kind of, it's kind of accurate ish, but it, it, the headline made it sound a lot worse than, than uh, than it was, but I'm fine with it. That's the way the that's the way the world I wanna I wanna almost make it easier for those journalists and make it easier for people who actually care about the conversation to go and look and see. Right, they can see it for themselves. For right? themselves so there's the headline, but the,
1: now you can
0: go. There's something about podcasts like the audio that makes it difficult to to go to jump to a spot and to look for that for for that particular information. I think some of it You know, I'm interested in creating, like, myself experimenting with stuff. So, like, taking Rev and creating a transcript, and then people can go to it. I do dream that, like, I'm not in the loop anymore, that, like, you know, Spotify does it, right? Like, uh, automatically for everybody. Because, ultimately, that one-click purchase needs to be there, like,
1: and like you kind of want support from the entire ecosystem yeah, right? exactly. Like from the tool makers and the podcast creators, even clients, right? I mean, imagine if like, uh, most podcast apps, you know, if, if it was a standard, right, here's how you include a transcript into mm-hmm. a podcast, right? Like it's just an RSS feed ultimately. Um, mm-hmm. and actually, uh, just yesterday I saw this company called Buzzsprout, I think they're, they're yep. called, uh, so, so they're trying to do this. They, uh, proposed a spec. Um, an extension to their uh, RSS format to reference podcasts, uh, reference transcripts in a standard way. Yeah, and they're talking about like there's one uh, client dimension that will support it, but imagine like more clients support it, right? So any podcast you could go um, and see the transcripts right in your like normal podcast app. Yeah,
0: I mean somebody. So I have somebody who works with me uh is works with helps with advertise uh, with advertising uh matt is awesome guy he mentioned bus brought to me but he says it's really annoying because they want exclusive uh they want to host the podcast right this is the problem with spotify too uh this is where i'd like to say like f spotify there's a magic to rss with podcasts Is. It can be made available to everyone, and then there's all there's this ecosystem of different podcast players that emerge and they compete freely, right. and that that's a that's a beautiful thing. That that's why going exclusive, like Joe Rogan went exclusive. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with. he went just just Spotify, is a huge fan of Joe Rogan. I've been kind of nervous about the whole thing, but let's see. Let's I hope that Spotify steps up. They've added
1: video, which is very surprising. That they were so so exclusive. Meaning on. you can't subscribe to his RSS feed anymore. It's you only in Spotify for now. You can until December first.
0: And December first, it all everything disappears, and it's Spotify only. I uh, you know and, and Spotify gave him a hundred million dollars for that. Yeah, so it's fine. it's a uh, it's an interesting deal. But I I you know I did some soul searching, and I'm glad he's doing it but if Spotify came to me with a hundred million dollars, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do, well, I, I have a very different relationship with money, I hate money, but I just think, I believe in the pirate radio aspect of podcasting, the freedom, yeah. and that there's something about- The open about, source spirit. The open source spirit, it just doesn't seem right, doesn't feel right. That said, you know, because so many people care about Joe Rogan's program, they're going to hold Spotify's feet to the fire. Like one of the cool things, what Joe told me is the reason he likes working with Spotify is that they, they're like ride or die together. Right. So they, they want him to succeed. So that's why they're not actually telling him what to do despite what People think they they don't tell him, they don't give them any notes on anything. They want him to succeed. And that's the cool thing about exclusivity with a platform is like you're kind of want each other to succeed. And that process can actually be very fruitful. Like YouTube, it goes back to my criticism. YouTube generally, no matter how big the creator, I mean, maybe for PewDiePie, something like that, they want you to succeed. But for the most part, from all the big creators I've spoken with, Veritasium, all of those folks, you know, they get some basic assistance, but it's not like YouTube doesn't care if you succeed or not. They have so they have, many creators. Yeah, like a hundred other. That, they yeah. don't care. So, and especially with um, with somebody like Joe Rogan, who YouTube sees Joe Rogan not as a person who might revolutionize the nature of news, and idea space and nuanced conversations, they see him as a potential person who uh, who uh, has racist guests on or like, you know, they, they see him as like a headache potentially. So, you know, a lot of people talk talk about this. It's, it's a hard place to be for YouTube actually, is figuring out with the search and discovery process, of how do you filter out conspiracy theories and which conspiracy theories represent dangerous untruths and which conspiracy theories are like vanilla untruths? And then even when you ha- start having meetings and discussions about what is true or not, it yeah. starts getting weird. Yeah. It starts it's getting it's weird.
1: difficult these days, right? I worry more about the other side, right? Of too much, you know, too much censorship. Not censorship. Well, maybe censorship is the right word. I mean, uh, Censorship is usually government censorship. But still, uh yeah, putting yourself in a position of arbiter for these kinds of things, it's yes. very difficult. And people think it's so easy, right? Like it's like, well, you know, like no Nazis, right? What a simple principle. Uh but you know, yes, I mean, no one likes Nazis. Yeah. But there's like many shades of gray. Yeah. Like very soon after that.
0: Yeah. And and then, you know, of course everybody, you know, there's some people that call our current president a Nazi, and then there's like so you start getting uh uh, Sam Harris, I don't know if you know that is <laughs> wasted uh, in my opinion. His conversation with Jack Dorsey, and I'll, I'll also I spoke with Jack before on this podcast, and we'll talk again. But <laughs> Sam brought up uh, Sam Harris does not like Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I I do listen to his podcast. So <laughs> I'm, I'm,
1: I'm familiar with his views on the matter,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, he asks Jack Dorsey's like, how can you not ban Donald Trump from Twitter? And so you know, there's a set. You have that conversation. You have a conversation where some number, some significant number of people think that the current president of the United States should not be on your platform. And it's like, okay, so if that's even on the table as a conversation, then everything's on the table for conversation. And yeah, it's it's tough. I'm not sure where I land on it. I, I'm with you. I think that censorship is bad, but I also
1: think- the Ultimately, be- I just also think, you know, If you're the kind of person that's going to be convinced, you know, by some YouTube video, you know, that, I don't know, our government's been taken over by aliens, it's unlikely that, like, you know, you'll be returned to sanity simply because, you know, that video is not available on on, on YouTube, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I tend to believe in the intelligence of people and we we should
0: trust them. But I also do think it's the responsibility of platforms to encourage more love in the world, more kindness to each other. And I don't always think that they're great at doing that particular thing. So that, that um, there, there's a nice balance there. And I think philosophically, I think about that a lot. Where's the balance between free speech and like encouraging people, even though they have the freedom of speech to not be an asshole.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: That's not a constitutional, like, uh, so you have the right for, st- to, for free speech, but, like, just don't be an asshole. Like, you can't really put that in the Constitution. The Supreme Court can't be like, eh, just don't be a dick. But I feel like platforms have a role to be like, just be nicer. Maybe do the carrot, like, encourage people to be nicer, as opposed to the stake of censorship. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting machine learning problem.
1: Just be nicer. Hmm. Uh, machine, yeah, machine learning for niceness. <laughs> it is. I mean, responsible that's... AI. I mean, it is. It is a thing, um, for sure. Jack Dorsey
0: kind of talks about it as a vision for Twitter: is how do we increase the health of conversations? I don't know how seriously they're actually trying to do that, though. Uh, which is one of the reasons I am, in part, considering entering
1: that space a little yeah, it's bit. It's difficult for them, right? Because, you know, it's kind of like well-known that, you know, people are kind of driven by, you know, rage and, you know, uh, outrage maybe is a better word, right? Outrage drives engagement. And, well, they, these companies are judged by engagement, right? So, it's, In the short it, term. But this goes to the metrics thing that we were yeah. talking about earlier. I do believe,
0: I have a fundamental belief that, if you have a metric of long-term happiness of your users, like not short-term engagement, but long-term happiness and growth and both like intellectual, and emotional health of your users, you're going to make a lot more money. You're going to have long-term, like you should be able to optimize for that. You don't need to uh, necessarily optimize for engagement. Yeah. And that'll be good for society
1: too. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I I generally agree with you, but it requires a patient person with, you know, Trust from Wall Street to 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 be able to carry out such a strategy. This
0: is the this is what I believe the Steve Jobs character and Elon Musk character is like. You basically have to be so good at your job, right? You get a you, pass for anything that you can hold the board and every all the investors hostage by saying like, either we do it my way, or I leave, and everyone is too afraid of you to leave, Because right. they believe in your vision, so that.
1: But that requires being really good at uh, yeah. really good at what you do. It requires being Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And there's, yeah. there's kind of a reason why like a third <laughs> name doesn't come immediately to mind, right? Like there is maybe a handful of other people, but it's, it's not that many. It's
0: not many. I mean, people say like, why are you like, people say that I'm like a fan of Elon Musk. I'm not, I'm a fan of anybody who's like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, and there's just not many of those folks
1: it's the guy that made us believe that like we can get to mars you know in 10 years right i mean that's kind of awesome and And it's kind of making it happen which is like (laughs) it's it's great it's kind of gone like that kind of like spirit right like from a lot of our society right you know like we can get to the moon in 10 years and like we did it right
0: yeah especially in this time of uh so much kind of Existential dread that people are going through because of COVID, right. like having rockets that just keep going out there now with humans. I don't know that uh, it. Just like you said, I mean, it, it gives you a reason to wake up in the morning and, and dream. Mm-hmm. And for us engineers, too, uh, it um, is inspiring as hell, man. I what? Well, let me ask you this: the the, the worst possible question, which is, uh, so you're like. At the core, you're a programmer, you're um, an engineer, but now you made the unfortunate choice, uh, or maybe that's the way life goes, of basically moving away from the low-level work and becoming a manager, becoming an executive, having meetings, Mm -hmm. uh, uh,
1: what's, what's that transition been like? It's been interesting, it's been a journey. Maybe a couple of things to say about that. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I I got into this, right, because uh, as a kid, I just remember this, like, incredible amazement at being able to write a program, right, and something comes to life that kind of didn't exist before. Yeah. I, I don't think you have that in, like, many other fields. Like, you have that with some other kinds of engineering, but you maybe a little bit more limited with what you can do, like, right? But with a computer, you can literally imagine any kind of program, right? Right. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit godlike uh, what you do like when you create it, uh, and so I mean that's why I got into it.
0: Do you remember like first program you wrote, or maybe the first program that like made you fall in love with com- with computer science?
1: Uh, I don't know what was the first program. It's probably like trying to write one of those uh, games in Basic, you know, like emulate the Snake game or whatever. Um, I don't remember to be honest, uh, but I enjoyed like that's why I always loved about you know being a programmer It's just the creation process, and um, it's a little bit different when you're not the one doing the creating, uh, and, you know, another aspect to it, I would say is, you know, when you're a programmer, when you're a individual contributor, it's kind of very easy to know when you're doing a good job, when you're not doing a good job, when you're being productive, when you're not being productive, right? You can kind of see like you are trying to make something and it's like slowly coming together. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you're a manager, you know, it's more diffuse, right? Like well, you hope, you know, you're motivating your team and making them more productive and inspiring them. Right. But it's not like you get some kind of like dopamine signal because you like completed X lines of code, you know, today. Uh, so kind of like you miss that dopamine rush a little bit, uh, uh, um, when you first, um, become, but then, you know, slowly you kind of see, yes, your teams are doing amazing work. Right. And you, you can take pride in that. Um, you, you can get like, uh, uh, what is it? Like, a ripple effect of a or dop- somebody
0: else's dopamine. Reaction. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You live off other people's dopamine. <laughs>
0: uh, so, is there pain points and challenges you had to overcome from becoming from going to a programmer to becoming a programmer of humans?
1: Programmer of humans. <laughs> I don't Just know. Humans are uh, difficult to understand. You know, uh, yeah, it's like one of those things, like trying to understand other people's motivations and what really drives them. It's difficult, maybe you like never really know, right? Do you find that people are different? Yeah. Like, like I, I, one of the things,
0: like I had a group at MIT that, you know, I found that like some people I, I could like scream at and criticize like hard and that made them do like much better work and really push them to the, their limit. And there's some people that I had to nonstop compliment because like they're so already self-critical like about yeah. everything they do that I have to be constantly like, <laughs> like I cannot criticize them at all because they're already criticizing themselves and you have to kind of encourage and like celebrate their little victories. And it's kind of fascinating that, like how that the complete difference in people. Yeah.
1: Definitely people respond to different motivations and different modes of feedback, and you kind of uh, have to figure it out. It's like a, a pretty good book, which some reason now the name escapes me, um, about management, First Break All the Rules. Uh, first Break All the Rules? First Break All the Rules. It's um, a book that we generally like, ask a lot of like first-time managers to read a ref. And like one of the uh, kind of philosophies is managed by exception, right? Mm which is, you know, don't like have some standard template. Like, you know, here's how I, you know, tell this person to do this or the other thing. Here's how I get feedback, like manage by exception, right? Every person is a little bit different. You have to try to understand what drives them mm-hmm. and, and tailor it to them. Since you mentioned books, I don't know if you can uh, answer this question,
0: but people love it when I ask it, which is, uh, are there books, technical, fiction, or philosophical that you enjoyed or had an impact on your life that you would
1: recommend you already mentioned dune like dune. all of the all of, all of the dune all of the dune the second one was probably the weakest but anyway so yeah <laughs> all of the dune is good um i mean yeah it,
0: can you just slow a little tangent on that is uh how many dune books are there like do you recommend people start with the first one if you if that was
1: yeah you got to have to read them all i mean it is a complete story right so um you start with the first one you got to read all of them um just so kind not like a tree, like that, like a, a creation of like the universe that you just should go in sequence. You should go in sequence. Yeah. It's a, it's of kind of a chronological storyline. Um, there's six books in all uh, Then There's like many um, kind of off books that were written by um, Frank Herbert's son, uh, but those are not as good. So you don't have to bother with those. Shots <laughs> fired. Shots fired. Okay. Shots fired. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, the, but the main uh, sequences is, is good. So what are some other books? Uh, maybe there's a few, so I, I don't know that like I would say there's a book that kind of I don't know turned my life around or anything like that. But here's a, here's a couple that I really love. Uh, so one is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, um, and it's kind of incredible how prescient he was about like what this what what a Brave New World might be like, right? You know, you kind of see genetic sorting in this book, right? Where there's like these alphas and epsilons and, uh, from like the earliest time of society, like they're sorted. like, you can kind of see it in a slightly similar, uh, way today where, well, one of the problems with society is people are kind of genetically sorting a little bit, right? Like there's much less, like most, most marriages right are between people of similar kind of, um, intellectual level or socioeconomic status more so these days than uh, in the past. And you kind of see some effects of it in stratifying society uh, and kind of he, he illustrated what, what that could be like in the extreme.
0: Different versions of it on social media as well. It's not just like marriages and so on, like it's genetic sorting in terms of what Dawkins called memes as ideas right, right. being put into these bins of these little echo chambers and so on.
1: Um, yeah, and that, that's the book that's, I think, a worthwhile read for everyone. I mean, 1984 is good, of course, as well, like if you're talking about, you know, dystopian novels of the future. Yeah, it's a slightly different uh, view of the future, right? It's, but I kind of, like, identify with Brave, Brave new, world, new World a little bit more, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, although, are... you know, Speaking of, uh, not a book, but my favorite kind of uh, dystopian science fiction is a movie called Brazil, which I don't know if you've heard of. I've heard of, it, and I know I need to watch it, but, yeah, because
0: it's in... Is, is is it in English or no? It's an, it's an
1: English movie, yeah. Uh, and it's a sort of like dystopian movie of authoritarian incompetence, right? Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. It's like like uh, nothing really works very well, you know, the system is creaky, you know, but no one is kind of like willing to challenge it, you know, just things kind of amble along. It kind of strikes me as like a very plausible future of like, you know, uh, of what authoritarians might look like. It's not like this, you know, super efficient evil dictatorship of 1984. It's just kind of like this badly functioning, you know, but it's status quo, so it just goes on. Uh, Yeah,
0: that's uh, one funny thing that stands out to me is in, um, whether it's authoritarian, dystopian stuff, or just basic, like, you know, if you look at the movie Contagion, it seems that in movies, government is almost always exceptionally competent. Like yeah. uh, it, it's like used as a storytelling tool of like extreme competence. Like, you know, you use it whether it's good or evil, but it's competent. It's very interesting to think about where much more realistically is, is incompetence and that incompetence isn't itself has uh, consequences that are difficult to, uh, to predict. Like bureaucracy mm-hmm. has a very boring way of being evil. <laughs> mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. just, you know, if you look at the uh, the show, HBO show Chernobyl, mm-hmm. it's a really good story of how bureaucracy, you know, uh, leads to catastrophic events, but not through any kind of evil in any one particular place, but more just like the- right.
1: It's just the system kind the of. System,
0: the system, distorting information as it travels up the chain, that people unwilling to take responsibility for things, and just kind of like this laziness Mm-hmm. Resulting in evil.
1: There's a comedic version of this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's called The Death of Stalin. Yeah, uh, I, I I like
0: that. I wish it wasn't so. There's a movie called Inglorious Bastards about mm-hmm. uh, you know Hitler and World War, you know so on. For some reason, those movies piss me off. I know a lot of people love them, but like, I just feel like uh, there's not enough good movies, even about Hitler. There's good movies about the Holocaust, but even Hitler. There's a movie called Dawnfall that people should watch. I think it's the last few days of Hitler. That's a good movie turned into a meme, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's good. But on Stalin, I feel like I may be wrong on this, but at least in the English speaking world, there's not good movies about the evil of Stalin.
1: That's true. Let's try to see that. I actually, so I I, I agree with you on the Glorious Pastors. I didn't love the movie um, because I felt like kind of the the stylizing of it right the whole like tarantino kind of um tarantinoism yeah if you will kind of detracted from it and made it seem like unserious a little bit mm-hmm. um but death of stalin i felt differently maybe it's because of the comedy to begin with so this is like i'm expecting you know right. seriousness but it kind of depicted the absurdity of the whole situation in a way right uh i mean it was funny so maybe it does make light of it but it Somebody is probably like this, right? Like a bunch of kind of people. They're like, "Oh shit!" Right? Like you're right, but like the thing is, it was
0: so close to like what probably was reality. It was caricaturing reality to where I think an observer might think that this is not like they might think it's a comedy. In well, in reality, this is that's the absurdity of. uh how people act with dictators. I mean, right. that's. It, I guess it was
1: too close to reality for me. Yeah. the <laughs> and, kind of banality of like what were eventually like fairly evil acts, right? But like, yeah, they're they're just a bunch of people trying to survive
0: <laughs> and like because I, mean, I, I think there's a good. I haven't watched it yet the good movie on uh, the movie on Churchill um, with uh, Gary Oldman. I think it was Gary Oldman, I might be making that up. But I think he won, like he was nominated for an Oscar or something. So I like, I love these movies about these humans and Stalin, like Chernobyl made me realize the, the HBO show that there's not enough movies about Russia that capture uh, that spirit. I'm sure it might be in, in, in Russian there is, but the fact that some British dude that like did comedy, I feel like he did like Hangover or some shit like that. I don't know if you're familiar with the person who created Chernobyl, but he was just like some guy that doesn't know anything about Russia. And he just went in and just studied it, like did a good job of creating it and then got it so accurate. Like poetically and uh, the facts that you need to get accurate, he got accurate. Just the spirit of it down to like the bowls that pets use, just the whole feel of it. It was mm-hmm. incredible.
1: No, it's, it's good. Yeah. I saw the series.
0: Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's, it made me made me wish that somebody did a good like, um 1930s, uh, like starvation that Stalin led to, like leading up to World War Two, and in, in World War II itself, like Stalingrad and so on. Like, I feel like that story needs to be told. Yeah. Millions of people died. It and it's it's to me it's so much more fascinating than Hitler because Hitler is like a caricature of evil almost. That it's so, especially with the Holocaust. It's so difficult to imagine that something like that is possible ever again. Stalin to me represents something that is possible. Like the the so interesting, like the bureaucracy of it is so fascinating that it potentially might be happening in the world now, like that we're not aware of. Like with North Korea, another one that like there should be a good film on. Mm-hmm. And like the possible things that could be happening in China with overreach of government. I don't know, there's there's a lot of possibilities there, I
1: suppose. Yeah, I I wonder how much, you know, I guess the archives should be maybe more open nowadays, right? I mean, for a long time, they just, we didn't know, right? Like, or anyways, no one in the West knew for sure. Well, there's a, I I don't know if you know him, there's a guy named Stephen Kotkin. He is a historian of
0: Stalin that I, I spoke to on this podcast. I'll speak to him again. The guy, Knows his shit on Stalin. Mm-hmm. He like read everything, and it's cool. it's so fascinating to 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 talk to somebody like he knows Stalin better than Stalin knew <laughs> himself. It's crazy. Like you have, so he's, I think he's at Princeton. He, he is basically his whole life is Stalin studying Stalin. Yeah, it's it's great, and in that context, he also. Talks about and writes about Putin a little bit. Mm-hmm. I've uh, also read at this point. I think every biography of Putin, English uh, English biography of Putin. I need to read some Russians. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm mentally preparing for a
1: possible conversation yeah. with Putin. So, what, what what is your first question to Putin when you have him on your on on, on the podcast? I it, it's interesting you bring
0: that up. First of all, I wouldn't tell you, but <laughs> <laughs> can't give it away now. Uh, but I actually haven't even thought about. That, so my current approach, and I do this with interviews often, but obviously that's a special one, but I try not to think about questions until last minute. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to sort of get into the mindset. And so that's why I'm soaking in a lot of stuff, not thinking about questions, just learning about the man. But in terms of like human to human, it's like, I would say it's, I don't know if you're a fan of mob movies, but like the mafia, which I am like Goodfellas yes. and so on, he's much closer to like mob morality,
1: which is like Mob morality, maybe. I could see that. But I like your approach anyways of this um the extreme empathy, right? It's uh, a little bit like, you know, Hannibal, right? Like if you ever watch the show Hannibal, right? They had that guy, um um well, you know, Hannibal, of course, like, uh, yeah, So uh, yeah. Sounds a lot. but there, there was a TV show as well. And it focused on this guy, Will Durand, uh, who's a character, like extreme empath. Right. So in the way he like catches all these killers is he pretty much, uh, he can empathize with them. Right. Like he can understand why they're doing the things they're doing. Right. And it's, yes. it's a pretty uh, excruciating thing, right? Like, because you're pretty much like spending half your time in the head of evil people, right? Like, yeah. uh, but. I mean, I, I definitely try to do that
0: with uh with other, so you, you you should do that in moderation. But yeah, uh I I think it's it's a pretty safe place, safe mm. place to be. Like one of the cool things with this podcast, and I don't know you didn't sign up to hear me listen to this bullshit, but
1: <laughs> uh but <laughs> it's interesting.
0: I uh in um uh, what's his name? Chris Latner, who's a Google uh he, oh, he's not Google anymore, sci-fi. He's legit, he's one of the most legit engineers I talk with. I talk with him again on this podcast and one of the, he gives me private advice a lot. And he said, for this podcast, I should like interview, like I should widen the range of people because that gives you much more freedom to do stuff. Like So his idea, which I think I agree with, with Chris, is that you go to the extremes. You just like cover every extreme base and then it gives you freedom to then go to the more nuanced conversations. It's kind of... I think there's a safe place for that. There's certainly a hunger for that nuanced conversation, I think, amongst people, where like on social media you get canceled for anything slightly tense, that there's a hunger to go full.
1: full. Right, you go so far to the opposite side. Kind of like demystifies it a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. There is a person behind all of these things.
0: Yeah, uh, and that's the cool thing about podcasting, like three, four hour conversations that, that, it's very different than the clickbait journalism. It's like the opposite, that there's a hunger for that. Mm -hmm. There's a willingness for that.
1: Yeah, especially now, I mean, how many people do you even see face-to-face anymore? Right, Right, like (laughs) this, you know? It's like not that many people like in my day-to-day, aside from my own family, that like I sit across. It's sad, but it's
0: also beautiful. Like I've gotten the chance to like, like our conversation now, there's somebody, I guarantee you there's somebody in Russia Listening to this now, like jogging. There's somebody who is just smokes some weed, sit back on a couch, and just like enjoying. Like I guarantee you that we will write in the comments right now that yes, I'm in St. Petersburg, I'm in Moscow, I'm whatever, and and we're in their head, mm-hmm. and they have a friendship with us. And I'm the same way. I'm a huge fan of podcasting. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's a it's a weird one way human connection. Like yeah. before, I went on Joe Rogan, uh, and still I'm just a huge fan of his. So it was like surreal. We had a, I've been friends with Joe Rogan for ten years, but one way, <laughs> yeah,
1: from this way, from the from the
0: Saint Petersburg way, <laughs> yeah, the Saint Petersburg way. And it's a real friendship. I uh, I mean, now it's like two way, but it's still surreal. It's yeah, and that's the magic of podcasting. I'm not sure what to make of it. That voice. It's not even the video part, it's the audio that's magical. That I don't know what to do with it, but it's people listen to 3 4 hours.
1: Yeah, we evolved over, you know, millions of years, right, to be very fine tuned to things like that, right? Yeah. Um, oh, well, expressions as well, of course, right? But uh, you know, back back in the day on the, you know, on the savanna, you had to be very attuned to, you know, whether you had a good relationship with the with the rest of your tribe, or a very bad relationship, right? Because you know, if you had a very bad relationship, you were probably going to be left behind and eaten by the lions. Yeah, uh, but it's weird that the tribe
0: is different now. Like, you could have a connect one way connection, with Joe Rogan, as opposed to the tribe of your physical yeah. uh, vicinity.
1: But that's, that's all, but that's why, like, you know, it works with the podcasting. Right? But it, it's the opposite of what happens on Twitter, right? Because all those nuances are removed, right? You're not connecting with the person yeah because you don't hear the voice you're connecting with like an abstraction right it's like some some stream of tweets right yeah. and it's very easy to assign to them any kind of like evil intent you know or dehumanize them which you, it's much harder to do when it's a real voice right because like you realize it's a real person behind the voice let me uh try this out on you I sometimes
0: ask about the meaning of life. Do you, uh, your your father now, an uh, engineer, you're uh, building up a company, do you ever zoom out and think like, what the hell is this whole thing for? Like why why are we descended to vapes even on this planet? What's, what's the meaning of it all?
1: That's a pretty big question. I think I don't allow myself to think about it too often or maybe like life doesn't allow me to think about it too often. Um, <laughs> But in yeah. some ways, I guess, the meaning of life is kind of uh, contributing to this kind of weird thing we call humanity, right? Like it's, in a way, you can think of humanity as like a living and evolving organism, right? That mm-hmm. like we all contributing in a sway way, but just by existing, by having our own unique set of desires and drives, right? Um, and maybe that means like creating something uh, great and it's bringing up kids who, you know, uh, are unique and, and different and seeing like, you know, taking joy in what they do. Um, but I mean, that, to me, that's pretty much it. I mean, if you're not a religious person, right, which I guess I'm not, um, that's that's the meaning of life. It's in the living and in the- in Creation. And the creation.
0: Yeah, there's something magical about that engine of creation. Like you said, programming, I would say, I mean, it's even just actually what you said, with even just programs, I don't care if it's like some JavaScript thing, on on a button on on the website, it's like magical that you brought that to life. I don't know what that is in there, but that seems, that's probably some version of recreation, of uh, like reproduction and sex, whatever that's in evolution, but like creating that HTML button (laughs) <laughs> has right, echo, has right. echoes of that feeling, and it's magical, uh, right? Well, I mean, you, if you're a
1: religious person, maybe you could even say, right, like we were we we're created in God's image, right? Well, I mean, I guess part of that is the drive to create something ourselves, right? I mean, that's 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 part of it. Uh, yeah,
0: that HTML button is the creation in God's. Uh, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe,
1: hopefully, it'll be something a little more. Uh, so dynamic, maybe bigger, some dynamic. JavaScript. yeah, maybe some uh, some JavaScript, some React, uh, and so on. But no, I mean, I think that's what differentiates us from you know the apes, so to speak. Yeah, we did a pretty good job, Dan. It was uh,
0: honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for being part of creating one of my favorite services and products. This is actually a little bit of an experiment, <laughs> allow me to sort of uh. Fanboy were some of the things I love. Um, so thanks for wasting your time with me today. It was, well, was really awesome. Fun.
1: Thanks for uh, having me on and giving me a chance to try this out. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks for listening to this conversation
0: with Dan Kokotov And thank you to our sponsors, Athletic Greens, only one nutrition drink, Blinkist app that summarizes books, Business Wars podcast, and Cash App. So the choice is health, wisdom, or money. Choose wisely, my friends. And if you wish, click the sponsor links below to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Ludwig Wittgenstein. The limits of my language means the limits of my world. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.